Welcome to Served Neat. I'm your host, Jen Hartman. I am wildly obsessed with marketing, sales, business, and the bottom line. I left corporate America with $3,000 in my bank account and a dream of becoming a successful entrepreneur. In the last two years, I grew my marketing consultancy to multiple six figures, worked with over 160 CEOs, and even started my very own fashion brand. In this podcast, I'll be serving up my best kept secrets to help you grow and scale your business. Each week, you'll hear from myself along with other entrepreneurs. You'll learn about what it actually takes to grow a brand, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. Pour yourself a glass of bourbon and get ready to take notes because it is time to dive into this week's episode. Have you ever wondered what it takes to build an empire, make the Forbes 30 under 30 list, and write a book? In today's episode, I had the opportunity to chat with a female founder who accomplished all of this and so much more, Allie Kriegsman. Allie is the co-founder and COO of Bulletin, a B2B wholesale marketplace. Her mission is to help founders and small business owners, especially women, redefine the word success. She believes that if you're launching a business from scratch and sign up for that struggle, you're already ahead of so many others out there who would prefer to defer a dream, stay stuck, or wonder what if. A recipient of Forbes 30 Under 30 and named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Aoi has helped thousands of brands expand their distribution and sell in both offline and online stores all across the U.S. and Canada. She is a salesperson, self-taught publicist, marketer, and growth strategist, and has experience scaling both bootstrapped and venture-backed businesses. Her first book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire, is the no-bullshit book on entrepreneurship you've always needed. It's available in hardcover and audiobook formats, which I will link in the show description. If you haven't read it, pick it up today. It is a must read. Allie writes about her experiences launching and growing Bulletin directly from the trenches and features words of triumph, failure, and wisdom from 30 other women-owned businesses. This book has been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, The Today Show, and many, many more. In today's episode, we talk about balancing a business with writing a book, her biggest business lessons, PR tips, and pivoting. It's a value-packed episode. I really appreciated Allie's transparency throughout it as well. Okay, let's dive in. Hey, Allie, I'm so excited to have you on this episode of Serve Neat. How are you? I am good. Recovering from the long weekend, just getting my bearings again, but I'm doing great. What about you, Jen? I feel that. I'm right there with you. I thought today was Tuesday for a couple of hours and it just, it takes me a while to get back into the swing of things after a holiday weekend. It's because our brains are finally detached and not on Slack and on our devices and getting pinged left and right. It's like our brains are given a moment to live how they should be. And they're getting, they get forced back into the grinder and they're like, help, I don't want to. It feels incredibly accurate. All right. Well, I'm excited to get into things. Let's just dive right in. So I first discovered you through your book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire, which is literal gold. You did an incredible job of highlighting the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to business. I just really appreciated your no BS approach and your vulnerability throughout the book as well. So my question for you is how did you balance writing a book while growing a goddamn empire? 
Yes, this is the age-old question. And I swear to you, Jen, sometimes I want to be like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I, it was tough. I am an expert when it comes to time management. I think that as an over-programmed uh, millennial, my mother did a lot to damage me in that regard, but also definitely gave me a toolkit for staying in the zone, managing my time, kind of carving out chunks of time to focus on one thing and not get overwhelmed with multitasking. I love making lists. So to get really tactical with it, um, I basically committed a few weeknights a week, um, usually around two hours between 9 p.m. and 11 or 11.30 p.m. So after bulletin work, which would end at around 8.30, but after, you know, eating a meal. And then I would give myself like an hour after finishing that up to like watch TV, hang with my dog, hang with my boyfriend. And then I would dedicate most of my weekends. Honestly, I would usually do like a full Saturday for five hours or a full Sunday or a mix of both. And I think the key to me is it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I always made sure to have time to myself during the weeknights, something to look forward to on the weekend. So if I was spending, you know, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a Saturday writing the book, I'd make sure that I had like a fun dinner with my girlfriends planned for that night or, you know, a date with my boyfriend or that I could dig into a book I was really anticipating reading. So for me, I think it's about like keeping momentum more so than letting yourself get bogged down or overwhelmed by the task at hand. And I I've always been this way. I'm much more of a like chip away at it every day type of person. I would start essays like two weeks in advance in college um, or in high school. I'm not a crammer. So I definitely think like pacing things out, giving myself the breathing room and just mentally being well-trained to kind of like live in one pocket for bulletin during, you know, the work week and during work hours and then letting myself shut that off and just focus on the book definitely helped me out in that regard. I'm over here like taking notes, mental notes for when I kind of start to dive into my book a little bit further. So I'm curious. I know that you had started the book before COVID. You've been working on it for yeah. a few years. How did COVID end up changing the direction of the book for you? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the book got postponed, I want to say two or three times before its final pub date in April of 2021. It initially got postponed for a good reason. They wanted to make it a more central title, like focus more muscle into the release. Um, and then I think the second or third delay was because of COVID. So it was actually really amazing. I feel like had I not gone through the book with a fine tooth comb, given COVID and the demands it put on people, the way that it changed people's relationship with work, I don't think the book would have resonated the way that it has. To just give a very quick example, ahead of COVID, you know, so many people were working side hustles in order to help build their dreams and make their dreams come true. They would, you know, go to their corporate nine to five, come home and focus on their blog or their small business business or their product line or their consulting practice. With COVID, obviously, I think the glorification of a side hustle, it, it just changed completely. So many people were out of work and suddenly had to make their side thing their main thing. People were out of work and had to step away from their side hustle for a while just to put money you know, in their pockets and food on the table. Mothers were obviously going through such a demanding and are still going through such a demanding period of juggling, working from home, trying to work 
work on something on the side and making their dreams come true in childcare. So when I initially wrote the book, you know, we were in in office pre-pandemic world. Um, and so all of these considerations and the different attitudes that people felt about work and about juggling multiple things at once, I just wasn't in that mindset at all. So I would say the biggest change was putting myself in the position of a reader that was adjusting to our new normal and like really reading the book again through a lens of a mother that could be overburdened with her full-time job. So she had to ditch her part-time thing, reading through the lens of someone who just got laid off and doesn't know what to do versus assuming that, you know, everyone is gainfully employed and working on something on the side that they're really excited about. Like that just really wasn't the case for so many of my readers by the time the book came out. Yeah, absolutely. It made so much sense. And like, when I read the book, it felt like you were writing it as you were going through it. And for that, it felt so much more relatable. Like, it's not like you wrote the book 10 years removed and you had yeah. to look back on things. Like you were literally going through all the BS, right? And you were writing yes. it as you did it. So I really, I love that perspective of it. So any advice for someone who is also building an empire and wanting to write a book, any tips and tricks? man, I'm actually working on my second book now. So I'm like trying to think of what's been working for me. I really think it's important to get clear in advance of putting pen to paper to get the chapters out. I think that the best discipline I learned with my first book was outline everything, like have a clear sense of what each chapter is about, the main points you want to make in each chapter. Think of it like an essay where there's like a beginning, middle, and an end. Everything needs to thread together and your reader needs to walk away with a very clear understanding of like what the hell your point is. I think one of the most frustrating things about, you know, building a business and writing at the same time is that they're both extremely time consuming and they both require such a demanding type of mental energy. And I'm not trying to sound like woo woo about it, but you know, it's, it's a very, you're doing it. So you get it. It's like a very specific type of deep work. And so I think what's most important is knowing that both things are going to take and demand time instead of anticipating that you're just going to sit down and have a great, you know, three hour writing session and it's all going to come to you. Use the weeks in advance of that writing session to be like, what do I want to get out of those three hours? Like, is it 500 words? Is it a thousand words? Is it like a certain point that I've been tossing around in my head that I really want to commit to paper and get in like perfect clarity in these next three hours? I think it's this balance of setting goals for yourself, um, reasonable and realistic goals. And then frankly, also stepping away if you're in the thick of it and you realize that that goal may not to come, come to fruition right then and there, um, not to reference like an influencer who is talking about something completely unrelated, but I really do think about this a lot when I write. Um, Tinks, I don't know if you follow Tinks on Instagram. She always talks about her like treadmill uphill walks. And she's like, I will get on the treadmill and do it for five minutes. And if it's just not hitting, if it's just not going to happen, like I will step off the treadmill, but I will always sit down and try. And I think writing is very similar. I think building a business is very similar. You're never going to be at a hundred percent peak performance. If you set a goal for the three hours of your writing and 
it's just not happening. Like think about what you need to do to get your body in great shape to hopefully do it the next day. So I think being really self-aware and like both hard on yourself in the sense of like you're setting ambitious goals and you are really like staying accountable to certain time commitments or like plans that you've made for your book or for your business, being aggressive with your plans, but then gentle in the execution where when you sit down and if it's just not coming, like step away to the inverse of that if it's really flowing, take longer than three hours, like stick it out for five hours. And then you can, you know, save yourself some free time for the next writing session. So it's all about balance. It's all about time management. And again, I think it's about being aggressive and ambitious with your goal setting and then gentle and self-aware in your execution. That was great advice. Thank you so much for sharing. So back to the book again, I really enjoyed chapter seven, specifically grow up and glow up, which talks about investing in your business. I'm curious what what were some really scary investments you made in the early days of Bulletin? And what was your mindset around spending money at that point? That chapter is uh, also one of my favorite chapters because it's, I think women, not, not to stereotype or to generalize, but like I genuinely, in my experience working with women-owned businesses, male-founded businesses, founders that, you know, identify in a wide range of ways. I think it's a very female issue, feel sometimes like specifically anxious or nervous or undeserving to like spend to earn. It feels somehow like antithetical or I don't know, just like, like it's not sensible. I think that there have been so many investments that we made that I just like grinned and crossed my fingers and squeezed my butt cheeks together. And was like, I hope this is the right move. I mean, one of them being like hiring much more senior people. People think early on in building the business. And by the way, I write like lessons as I go. So like, I'm still writing lessons of like, should have done this differently or like made a mistake when we did this thing three years ago. I I just, I love remembering that I'm always learning. And one of the things I just wrote was, yeah, like early on in a business, you feel like, oh, if I can get like so-and-so at like an entry-level salary and kind of train and educate them and handhold them through like becoming this particular hire that I really need, in that sense, you're kind of putting, a price tag on your time in a way that I think founders don't realize versus like if you could spend $35,000 more and hire the director version of that hire who's done this at a previous company or ran their own company and done this, how will that free you up to help think of your bottom line or strategize the future of the business or do vision planning? I think that women often, and again, I don't mean to generalize, this is purely based on my personal conversations and experiences experiences, women feel like it's on them to handle a lot of the execution. And they feel like they should just take the L and take it on the chin. If it's the difference between like spending 10,000 more dollars or just doing it themselves. I think that, I mean, that's something I'm very passionate about fixing because I do think that all of those shorter term or more affordable decisions we made in the short term had long-term implications that to my earlier point, I may not have seen for three years, you know, creeping around the corner. So I definitely think hiring more senior talent to me early on always felt more anxiety inducing than like hiring someone more junior that I could train up. I would say another thing is like investing in my own leadership skills and management skills. Bulletin paid for an executive coach for both me and Alana after raising our last round of financing. And I worked for her for over a year and it completely changed my self-perception, how I'm seen by my team, how I'm seen 
by Alana, my business partner. It's taught me incredible lessons that I've brought into my personal life. It's helped me with boundary setting. And so I think that's another area where like we looked at that price tag and we were like, oh my God, this money, we could put this toward like hiring this other person, or we could put this toward ads, or we could put this toward, you know, this other amazing optimization. But I think I'm so glad that we ended up, you know, using, allocating that money toward investing in ourselves because I have reaped the rewards and the benefits for years since. So I would say those have always been like the two biggest things, like investing in top tier talent that feels a little bit out of your budget, but could save you time and really help take you out of the weeds and out of the execution and free you up for more strategic thinking. That would be the first one. And then the second one would be investing in my own talent. I always felt like founder, it's just on me to learn as I go relearn from other founders, but I definitely think making the investment in a formal coach was transformative for me, even though it felt really like icky and like I didn't deserve it or I shouldn't be doing it at the time. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. It's funny as you talk about this, I'm like, oh yeah, did the same thing, did the same thing. I think very similar to you. Um, I think it is a very like women, I feel like it's a lot of women who feel this way too. Like I don't see men who, who deal with finances in this way or who have like a lot of emotions around money, but all of my female clients are exactly that way. And it's funny, like you talking about investing in yourself and a coach, I've done that too. I've invested in business coaches and masterminds. And every time I do it, I feel like I'm going to throw up because it's like $10,000, $20,000 that I'm not going to see again. But then in six months, I see that return times three or times five. And it's so funny, like what goes back and forth when you make that kind of investment? It's like, well, I need, I need to do it. Is it going to be worth it? I know this is going to help, but I'm terrified. Like you just like yep. go back and forth and it's like such an emotional purchase when you're investing in yourself, but it always, always, always pays off in the end. So I'm so glad that you, that you brought that up. Yes, definitely. So Allie, you are the queen of pivoting. Bulletin has gone through quite a few shifts since launch. You guys went from a newsletter to pop-up markets, to physical shops, to an online marketplace. What are a few tips you would give to a founder who is going through a pivot? I feel like there should be like a very specific like coaching practice for this. I think it's such a unique mindset to be in. It is such a tumultuous period for any founder. You're like facing down the barrel of the unknown, often after you've reached a lot of prior success. I mean, that was the case with us. Like everyone in New York and their mothers knew what the bulletin stores were. We had been in the New York Times, Refinery29, like any publication, you name it. Um, We had all these beloved customers and, and regulars, and we had such great programming. And it felt like I really vividly remember what it felt like realizing that due to how we were financed as a venture-backed business and the scale that we need to reach, we were kind of straddling this weird, like, are we a kind of retail company or are we a technology company? And I was in the bath once we realized like we really had to do this big shift again and pivot again. And I was like, oh my God, it felt like I was staring up Mount Everest. And like, I had this like raggedy old, like cane with me. Like I didn't have the proper equipment (laughs) and I was just like, oh my God, this is like going to be so brutal. And it was, but I think that the advice I would give is that feeling I had of like staring down, like 
Mount Everest with like my raggedy old cane. It's because I didn't, I don't think I had like the toolkit or the support system to get myself through the pivot proactively in a way that like would keep me afloat and be sustainable for me. That's when we got our executive coach. So like kind of finally was like, okay, I need support. I need help. I went back into therapy. Um, I like completely kind of overhauled the level of communication that me and Alana had with each other. I feel like I became way more communicative and just stepped into my agency a bit more as a business partner. I would get way more open with my family about like what I was going through and what was hard on me. The same with my friends. I feel like my friends up until that point just kind of saw me as this like Forbes 30 under 30, like everything she touches turns to gold. And like, that's not my lived experience at all. But I also really hadn't opened up enough to give them a true view into who I was and what I was going through and like why this pivot felt so demanding and how hard it was. So I think my first bit of advice would be like, if you feel that daunting sense of like staring down a big change or a big evolution or pivot with your company and you feel like you don't have what you need, like take the time to journal and investigate, like what do you need? Is it like a person that's a few steps ahead of you, like a formal mentor or advisor you can check in with on a regular basis to give you a pat on the back, gut check your decision and help you feel like you're making the right calls. Like it's okay for you to need that. Like go find that person. Like don't start this journey until you find that person. I would say the second thing is like, maybe you just need, I don't know, some like emotional support. Can that be your partner? Can that be your friends? Can that be your family? Like you don't have to go through this alone, especially if you're a solo founder, which I wasn't. I'm so grateful that I had Alana, but it can feel really lonely regardless. So I think the first piece of advice is like build your support system. I think the second piece of advice is like, be patient with yourself. I recently have like cleared out certain alerts on my phone. I just transitioned to a new computer. So I was like going through all these old documents and all these old like working plans for certain parts of the marketplace and like the things that felt so urgent and alarming. And like, we didn't have our SHIT together at the time. Like, yeah, we didn't solve it or like, you know, do the pivot to its fullest extent within like a six month timeframe. But like by eight months, everything was figured out. And I feel like because of things like Instagram, Instagram and the way that people talk about their companies and themselves and their businesses and entrepreneurship, like we expect things to happen like that. For those who can't hear, I just snapped my finger. And I think that like, it's really important to know that pivots are a big deal. Like they're a big strategic decision. It's like literally turning the Titanic around. Like it's not going to go well, always. It's not going to go sm smoothly. I should say it's not going to happen quickly. And you're probably like going to hold yourself to some perfectionist standard that like, you're just realistically not going to be able to meet. So I think, again, I would honestly share the same advice I shared about like writing and building a business at the same time, like be ambitious, be aggressive with your goals and your vision, but like be delicate and gentle on yourself as you get there, because the more ambitious and the loftier your goals are, like the harder you're going to have to work every single day. Most days you'll be at, let's say like 89%, but the days that you're at 60% or like the weeks that just don't go as planned, like don't beat yourself up. Don't be too hard on yourself. Pivots take a long time and you know, you're doing the right thing by changing your business, by to keep it alive or to grow it, whatever the reasoning is. And like, believe that you are a good decision maker and that you have good judgment. And like, I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind when things aren't always going as smoothly as you'd like. Ooh, I like that you touched on the emotional aspect of pivoting and not just the tactical part of it, yeah. because it is very emotional. Like I remember during one of our pivots in business, I felt like a failure. Yeah. While other people were like, good for you. You're doing the dang thing. I was like, yeah. 
I feel like my original idea failed and I don't know how I'm going to come back from this. Like that's what was running yeah. through my mind. So thank you so much for touching on, on that part of the pivot. Yeah. So building I, off of it, I want to share one thing there quickly. I talked to a lot of, again, women founders about this in particular, what you said about like feeling like a failure when your first idea didn't work. Like no one's first idea works. Like, I don't know like how many times I have to say it. Like there was a period when we were pivoting where I would literally Google just to make myself feel better. Like 50, like billionaires who like failed or like, you know, like 30, like, like amazing CEOs who like had a business idea fail. And like, if you knew the number of like household name founders that just like were hitting the pavement, hitting the pavement and like falling on their face year after year after year before their big win or before their big idea, you'd be shocked. Um, and so that, that's the thing to keep in mind. Like you're in the ring, right? The fact that you're even like bringing a business to market, ideating, improving it and changing it. Like who, who are you worried about seeing you as a failure? Like, the people who are going to have any sort of judgment or the people that haven't even tried in the first place and like no offense to them they don't count you don't. i love that no you're so right thank you so much for sharing that so building on the pivot chit chat that we're having what was the most challenging part of moving bulletin from in person to online because that is a huge shift i think that the tack i think the tactical hurdle was realizing that we needed to build a completely new and different team. We were really close as a team prior to the marketplace pivot. Um, so many of the people on our team, whether it in our stores or, you know, within corporate had been with us for many years, they were all extremely talented. That being said, they didn't necessarily have, we didn't necessarily have all the tools in the, in our toolkit that we needed to pursue our vision and hit our goals for the marketplace. Um, and so I think tactically, like shutting down our stores, laying off our retail staff, all of that was like really heavy, really hard. It's basically this well-timed orchestra of events where you're trying to be as thoughtful and careful as possible with people that have committed in many cases, like two or three years of their career to you. Um, and I think that was tactically very tough. And you just have to keep your eye on the prize. It's what I said earlier, you know, like this is hard this week. This is going to be hard this month, but like we need product people. We need engineers. Like we have a limited budget and like, who are we bringing into the mix to make this happen? That's our job. That's our fiduciary responsibility to this, this, to this company. I think emotionally it's what we said earlier. I mean, the reality was I was writing a book called how to build a goddamn empire while closing all of my stores and launching a wholesale marketplace from scratch that we didn't know would get even a single order. Like I felt like a fraud. I felt like an imposter. I felt so scared. I felt, I, I like, oh, I remember meeting with my editor and just hysterically crying into like a bowl of salad and being like, I don't think I can do this. And I think that your sense of feeling like a failure when your first business idea failed is, yeah, that's exactly what I was reckoning with, you know, at that point. And I think so many women go through this. Like if you raise any smidge of venture capital or like launch any scale or size of a successful company, people will put you on a pedestal. They will glorify you. They will put you on the 30 under 30 or most, most creative this like lists. 
And I felt like I had had this debut. This is like very egotistical and I'm, I don't care, but I had felt like I had had this debut in the business world and then was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Like we're doing something different now. And I was like, how does this make me look? You know, what is everyone going to think? And I feel like only in the last few years, and I think COVID has been such a game changer for me in this regard. Like, I just don't care what other people think anymore. Like if they have critical feedback or want to have a conversation that's going to help me grow amazing if they're behind the scenes just like yip yapping and you know sending details about our pivot to their little private chat and they're talking smack like I don't know about it so why do I care about it so yeah I think the hardest part emotionally was the same experience you had and like just getting over that feeling of fraudulence when you really were just doing the right thing for your business at the time yeah yeah absolutely how did you pull yourself out of that point was it like a okay, the business is succeeding and now I'm good. Or how did that work? Because a lot of women get stuck in that cycle. Yeah, I have two things to say to that. I think one, Alana is amazing. Like my business partner, my co-founder, she's our CEO. She takes everything day by day. She's optimistic, but puts in like the grunt work and the hard work to like justify being optimistic. And I just took a cue from her. Um, And that's what I've been doing. I feel like for most of my career at Bulletin is just kind of letting her be the guiding light of how I should see things and process things. And she was an inspiration to me in that regard. And I think having that modeled for me got me out of my rut. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of why I was saying earlier, like if you're pivoting or making a tough business call, like find a mentor that is multiple paces ahead of you or that you really respect because having that in-house for me um, did kind of keep me in the right headspace. Secondly, my executive coach at the time said to me, she made me stand up and like breathe and like scream it into the screen. She was like, you need to say the following words. Like I've done the impossible before and I can do it again. And I said it and just cried through it because she was right. Like to have launched the stores we launched and built the brand that we built and do all the hiring we needed to do and like raise, you know, rounds of funding, like getting into Y Combinator. Like I, I was so intimidated and so overwhelmed by the prospect of the pivot. I hadn't breaking it down into little pieces. I hadn't set realistic goals. I was just telling myself that it was impossible and that I wasn't going to be able to do it. And so my, my executive coach kind of playing back to me in my own language, like you've done the impossible before and you can do it again, um, completely changed my mindset where I was like, oh, I am that bitch. Like I will make this happen. Like I can do this. Um, and honestly the overwhelm and the anxiety and the like depressiveness and the self-pity is getting in the way of me being out, able to actually take action. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and I want to know which marketing and PR efforts have produced the biggest results for Bulletin? So I would say... I'll give, I'm I'm all about the two examples in this conversation. (laughs) I'm like, let me give two examples. So when we were running our pop-up markets and our stores, I basically just like reverse engineered 
a shopper's journey to like finding us. Um, and I'll clarify what that means. So when we were doing pop-ups, I was like, okay, we were on North 8th and Driggs um, in this massive parking lot. There has since been a, I think, apartment complex built on top of this massive parking lot. But at the time it was like a well-foot trafficked area, but I was like, how are we going to get more people to like come to this market? Like we don't have the same budget as like a smorgasburg, which has been around forever. We don't have the same budget as like artisan fleas or Long Island flea. Like if someone is going to come here, how are they even going to know to come here? And so I just Googled like things to do in New York this weekend or like best pop-ups in New York. And I was like, oh, that, yeah, that's how people are going to find us. Like they're going to, it's going to be tourists or it's going to be people that have friends visiting or like, you know, women in their early twenties or just people in their early to mid twenties who like have a lazy weekend and want to, you know, explore, go shopping or do something fun. Like that's what they're going to be searching. So I basically just SEO'd it and I got placements in Racked, which was a shopping site at the time, Time Out New York, all of these local Brooklyn publications. And I think still, if you Google like best places to shop in New York, like Bulletin comes up as like the first result of a Time Out New York, like slideshow or like listicle. And so I just kind of reverse engineered, like how is someone going to find us? And then like gamed the internet and like backed out from that to figure out what press placements we needed. So instead of just spraying and praying and being like, I want to get in all these publications, I'm going to pitch all of them. I was like, okay, I need to get up. I need to get in publications that are talking about pop-ups in New York, where to go shopping, what to do this weekend. And like, those are my priority ones. So I think that, and then as soon as we were in time at New York, like two weekends later, I started pulling people when they would come into the market. Like, how did you find us? Everyone was like, oh, time at New York, time at New York, time at New York. So that was insanely effective. And it was local press. Like we weren't in, you know, like L magazine or something. So it, it was a smaller press hit, but had like a massive, drove massive outcomes for us. And I would say the second thing, the thing that we did with the wholesale marketplace, it was very similar. Honestly, it was like figuring out who our customer was and where else they were reading and like getting in those publications. So there's this blog called wholesale in a box, um, that does like education and training and like reporting and insights for small businesses looking to scale their wholesale distribution. And so I made sure that we built, I built a relationship with the, uh, owner and we got a great review like months later, like, you know, a full blown review of bulletin wholesale. And it was a really big deal for us in like the subject line of the email to get bundled with these much bigger, well-funded wholesale marketplaces. I was like, oh my God, we're being named with like fair and Tundra. This is crazy. And then the product boss is another education platform for small businesses. I befriended the owners. I was, I got on their podcast. And I would say like, I, I don't have an exact percentage off the top of my head, but like a really good chunk of our brand applications, retailer registrations um, came from wholesale on a box and from the product boss. And so I talk about this in my book, like I really believe in what I call PR microdosing, like for your ego, you may want to get in Marie Claire if you have like a cool new brand or you may want to get in like nylon magazine if you have like an, a cool edgy brand or things like that. Or maybe you're, I, I don't know, maybe you're launching some really important healthcare company and like you want your story told in the New York Times, like that's all legitimate. But I believe that press and marketing needs to have an objective attached to it. And my objective is always like get more brands on bulletin, get more retailers shopping it and like drive more sales for our brands. Um, and so all of my press strategy has been built around that. I'm actually not trying to get in the New York Times. I'm not trying to get in, you know, I don't know, 
Esquire, I'm getting these smaller publications because this is where my community is going to get a review of us, to figure out if other businesses are using us and what their experience is like, to compare us to other players. So yeah, I, I would say the overall like insight here is like the, the notion of go big or go home when it comes to press, I don't believe in that. I think that often like attacking more micro publications that just are in the insane sweet spot for your customer can be a more more effective in hitting your PR and marketing goals. Yeah, that was a great point. And we do PR, PR and marketing at Neat Marketing. And sometimes clients think, well, Forbes is it. I need to be in Forbes. And I'm like, well, is your end goal sales? Like, what are we working towards? And yeah. sometimes it's those smaller publications yeah. that push the needle the most. Yeah. So I really like that you talk about that because it's, um, it's something that a lot of people need to know when they are diving into PR. Yes, a thousand percent. And I mean, the, you know, this because you do it, but like I've worked with publicists who have charged $1,500 a month. I've been pitched by publicists that are, that want like $20,000 a month. And the way that you, everyone is like, I don't know how to pick a publicist. I don't know how to like figure out what my PR strategy should be. It's ROI is ROI. Like if I'm paying someone, let's say for book publicity, like you know, $3,000 a month. I paid my book publicist $3,000 a month. I am betting that I can at least break even and get $3,000 worth of book orders from that. So like you should not be spending $20,000 on a publicist if like they, they can't guarantee you some series of placements or like confirm certain connections with certain journalists where you're like, oh, wow, I'm going to get posted by, uh, you know, like, Gabrielle Union, right? And like, that's going to get me X number of sales. Like if you can't get that vote of confidence, then like you really don't need to be spending $20,000. You may very well be better served targeting the smaller publications like we've been discussing. Yeah, that's awesome. Such great advice. Thank you so much for sharing. Last question on my list. What is one business lesson you learned the hard way? Okay, I'm opening my real-time list of lessons that I, so oh my God, I have so many I want to share. Okay. Three. I'll go with three. <laughs> okay. Um, this, this might be a controversial thing to say, and I accept that, but I'm just, I'm coming into my own as a truth teller. And I don't, I don't know. I think that we're in, we've been in this really interesting place for the last few years where employees and employers like don't really understand who's in contract with who. I think that employers are in a very challenging position of needing to create a top-notch work experience, albeit it being remote, albeit being under certain budget constraints because of realities in the market or realities of um, closing, you know, certain rounds of financing, especially with how volatile the market has been in even the last month. Um, I think that employers need to offer, um, they, they obviously need to spotlight on and put their money where their mouth is when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Um, same thing with ele elevating women and paying women in the workplace, what their rates are and what they're owed and what, you know, they can command at that respective stage in their career. There are like so many things that employers need to juggle and be mindful of. Um, 
And I think in many ways it's put them from, from talking to other founders um, across all different backgrounds, identifications, it's kind of put them on their back foot in a way where um, I think that especially women managers feel this like increased discomfort in taking up space, maintaining agency and like asking and demanding for what they're owed as employers um, or as managers within an organization. And so I think something that we've learned the hard way is in many cases, I, I avoided being assertive because I didn't want to be seen as aggressive. I didn't shut someone down when they were asking for something unreasonable um, or just like out of scope for that quarter um, because I didn't want to be seen as like a naysayer. Um, there are just certain like shifting dynamics in the employer-employee relationship right now that I think are very tricky for everybody to navigate. Um, but I think one lesson I learned the hard way is like by not setting your boundaries, by not being assertive, by not communicating what you expect as an employer and like what the contract that your employees have entered into by accepting your, um, your uh, job offer, um, you are not setting yourself up for success or the employee up for success. They don't know when they're performing well or when they're not performing well. They don't know like what to expect from the company versus like what they need to figure out on their own. Um, like I remember when we were running our stores and a lot of our part-time retail staff, like they wanted headspace memberships or um, like memberships to these, you know, mental health apps. And I really commend that. Um, and we spent months being like, yep, we're figuring it out. We are figuring out. We were like in, com in conversation with all these companies. Um, but then it came down to it and it was like, well, is this like, is this something that we should be offering is to our part-time staff? If this is something we're not offering to our corporate staff and just this, this, like this, um, this dynamic, I think is getting like increasingly, um, more complex. And I think that it is putting women leaders in a position where they, they tend toward being accommodating versus maintaining their assertiveness. So I don't mean for that to be controversial, but I think that's a big one that I've learned the hard way. And I think the other one is just delegation. Um, I feel like for a long time, I was experiencing burnout and I didn't know it. I didn't know what that was. And it turns out it was a result of taking on too much work and not entrusting, uplifting, and like delegating to the amazing people on my team. I think that delegating more versus less is the way to go and then pull back and take on more ownership when things go wrong. But um, one of my mentors at Shopify, she's like, I basically manage from a trust but verify point of view, which is leaving room for things to go wrong and like accepting that someone may not do something perfect the first time, but like that's a teaching moment. That's a moment for you to help them as a manager, as a leader, get better at their job. I definitely, for a lot of my career, micromanaged and I didn't know. And I regret that. I think it didn't create the best experience for my direct employees. And I think it didn't allow me the space and the breathing room to be as strategic as I wanted or to have as much balance as I wanted. So I think those are my two big ones. I think that, yeah, one of the big lessons I've learned the hard way is like being overly accommodating because you feel indebted to your employees in some way, which I get right. They're helping you pursue your dream, build your rocket ship. I write about this in my book, like your employees deserve a ton of 
respect, admiration, praise, and like support, that's very different from like letting them walk all over you, frankly. And I think that the second thing is delegate. Like if you have this amazing team of employees, like give them hard work, give them the deep work, give them the work that maybe you want to keep to yourself because you feel like you're great at it or you enjoy it, but you will have a more uh, sustainable time growing your business if you get out of the weeds sooner rather than later. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing those lessons. Those were amazing. And just like the level of self-awareness you have as a leader is incredible. Just like listening to you talk about those answers, like how you used to operate, what you learned, advice to give, like, this was great. Thank you so Thank much. You. Allie. I appreciate you. it. So last but not least, how can everybody find you online? Um, everyone can find me on Amazon. My book is called how to build a goddamn empire. Um, it's out in hardcover and audiobook. Um, I am trying to push the audiobook. I feel like I like I spent two days like drying my throat for this audiobook. <laughs> Buy the audiobook. Um, and then I'm on Instagram as at Allie Kriegs. Um, and that's pretty much it. I'm very light on the socials these days. I am trying to push the audiobook. I feel like I like I spent two days like drying my throat for this audiobook. <laughs> buy the audiobook and that's pretty much it I'm very light on the socials these days though I've been reading and as I mentioned working on my second book so I think buying my book is probably the best way to get more from me at this stage absolutely I second that go buy the book it is so good thank you Jen <laughs> I really appreciate it of course so much for uh for showing up today I appreciate yes. it it was great chatting with you you as well 